who's the most impressive British politician you've you've met or seen in person? Oh, Winston Churchill, without any doubt. Uh, when I oh well, that's a name drop. Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> do tell that story. No, this was just when uh, the first time I went to Parliament was in 1964. I was about. I guess, 12 years old, 11 or 12 years old. And we were living in the UK for a year. And my dad had this crazy American idea, I'll bring my kid to Parliament. So uh, we had some parishioners who could get us uh, tickets. And we went up to the Strangers Gallery. And, and there really, I, I didn't see any other kids there. This was very eccentric American thing. And we're sitting in the strangers' gallery, and they're going on and on down in Parliament. And this old guy walks into Parliament, comes, sits down, and goes immediately to sleep at one of the back benches. And everybody applauded. It was Winston Churchill. Even as a as a twelve year old, I could recognize him, and um, it was pretty thrilling. He didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. He he just went to sleep. This was one of his last appearances in Parliament. He he only. One of his biographers, I sort of checked up on this, said that uh, he only went about three times in that last year, and he didn't run for re-election in 64, in the fall of 64. So, Jeremy, there is a chance, if time goes by, that I'll be the last living person to have seen Winston Churchill on the floor of the House of Commons. So I'm, I'm eating my Wheaties and taking my vitamins every day to see if I can't win that title. Amazing. Well, yeah, we I, we should reemphasize the fact that you were only twelve, and he lived to be over ninety. I think, lest any of our listeners overestimate your age on the basis of this story. It's getting harder and harder to overestimate my age, frankly. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to What Really Matters. I'm Tablet Deputy Editor Jeremy Stern with you in Los Angeles. I'm here, as always, with Walter Russell Mead tablet news writer, Global View columnist at the Wall Street Journal, and distinguished fellow at Hudson. Let's begin with this week's news. First story of the week. Shortly after the Azerbaijani military blew past Russian peacekeepers and routed fighters defending ethnic Armenians in the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, concerns mounted about the tens of thousands of Armenians stranded there under their new Azerbaijani rulers and avowals from both Armenia and Russia that they would not intervene. Now, thousands of ethnic Armenians are fleeing Nagorno-Karabakh amid fears of ethnic cleansing. Azerbaijan has tried to calm the fears, promising to recognize the rights and freedom of Armenians in the region, while Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan recently appeared in a part of Azerbaijan cut off from the rest of the country, backing Baku's demand for a transport corridor across southern Armenia. So a lot going on here, Walter, but news or phone news? Well, it's... Uh... It's news if you're living in Nagorno-Karabakh, if you're an Armenian there. It's, it's a tragedy. It's been coming for a long time. The Armenians, I think, made a real mistake. That is, in, after the, at the fall of the Soviet Union, they, um, they won a war with Azerbaijan and, and managed to occupy not only Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an enclave that is technically, or I suppose no longer just technically, is internationally recognized as belonging to Azerbaijan, but has a 
large Armenian majority, and not only that territory, but some of the surrounding areas. And a number of Azerbaijanis actually were uh, fled or were forced out of some of the of those territories. And uh, the Armenians, uh, in part because they have a very large and active diaspora, which is quite hawkish, as many diasporas are, except for the American Jewish diaspora, uh, many diasporas are considerably more hawkish than their governments back home. I am, by the way, a member of the Jewish diaspora living in the heart of the Armenian diaspora in Glendale. <laughs> All right, now I'm shocked. Uh, they didn't. The Armenians didn't negotiate when they were strong, uh, or rather, they wouldn't negotiate enough to reach agreement with the with the Azeris. And then over the years, uh, the Azeris developed their oil resources, gas resources, and became uh, quite wealthy. Visibly, uh, were building up strength. The Armenians hoped that their alliances with Russia and Iran would offset Azeri power. But uh, the Azeris, who did in fact also um, develop deep relations with the Israelis, in part because of their common opposition to Iran, the um, Azeris actually reached a, a military over a point of overwhelming military superiority, with Russia somewhat distracted by Ukraine, and Russia also quite angry with the Armenian political leadership. Azerbaijan was able to attack, was able to solidify its hold on much of the lost territory. And this, what we saw today or this last week, was sort of the final moment in that conflict. All I can say really is that this is one of hundreds, literally, of these ethnic disputes that we've seen erupt around the world in the last maybe couple hundred years. Some of them have gone on even longer than that. Almost never are these decided on the basis of compromise based on mutual understanding and respect. They almost always end in violence, often repeated cycles of violence. And generally speaking, they only come to an end when an external power imposes a settlement. So while the Soviets were strong, the Armenians and the Azeris didn't really fight because they were under the heel of the Soviet Union. Anybody who started trouble would get smacked down by Moscow. But almost immediately when the Soviet Union collapsed and Russia was weak, the fighting began. One follow-up there. I mean, an interesting element of the story that you, you touched on a little, that the, the fault lines aren't what you might think, or at least not what like Samuel Huntington might have predicted, right? So one of the two main great power patrons of Armenia, which is Orthodox Christian, other than Russia, is the Islamic Republic of Iran, while Azerbaijan, which like Iran is majority Shiite Muslim, has Turkey, a Sunni power, as its great backer, and its top arms supplier is Israel. I mean, does this suggest anything to you about like the primacy of geopolitics at the expense of religion or ideology or anything like that? Well, it sounds like you're uh, suggesting that. Uh, look, I think uh, small nationalities live in a world where they, there isn't a lot of margin of error. You, you work with the allies you can find. You do what you can. You do what you must in order to get what you can. It's tragic because justice is almost never the winner in these things. Um, the, the Azeris will, will say that justice has been served by this. Obviously, the Armenians will disagree. But I think of the Rohingya in Myanmar. I actually, You can think of the Israeli-Palestinian example at its heart. That is another one of these conflicts. And they are found everywhere. 
they have classically in Europe, they've ended in massive ethnic cleansing and massacres after which you have relatively homogenous nation states. So the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the old Russian Empire included lots of countries that today are independent. And at one time, the various ethnic groups who had didn't necessarily think of themselves as nations in in the old days in a modern sense, lived almost peacefully together for hundreds, thousands of years. But when those old empires began to fail, when modernization sort of stirred nationalism and identity politics, this cauldron started to boil. And it uh, all through 19th century Europe, 20th century Europe, and certainly into today, we see one war after another along these lines. All right, our second story. And we're recording this on September 26th, two days before the episode airs. So keep that in mind in case anything happens between now and then. With a government shutdown looming, Congress is moving into crisis mode as Speaker Kevin McCarthy faces an insurgency from some House Republicans eager to slash spending. The House is expected to vote on a package of bills to fund parts of the government, but it's not clear McCarthy has the support needed to move ahead, according to the AP. Meanwhile, the Senate is preparing its own bipartisan plan for a stopgap measure to buy some time and keep offices funded past Saturday's deadline, but plans to tack on additional aid to Ukraine have run into trouble as a number of Republicans in both the House and Senate oppose spending more money on the war effort. Last thing I'll note there is Moody's, the only remaining major credit grader to assign the U.S. a top rating has signaled that its confidence in the grade is wavering. So, Walter, another shutdown, another potential shutdown. Here we go again. Is this news or phone news? It's basically phone news. Uh, these things happen. Uh, we'll see. Sometimes people manage to, you know, everyone's going to be, okay, who won? Who won? Uh, nobody really wins. Uh, often somebody does lose in this. I think the Republicans, classically, when you control the House of uh, I almost said the House of Commons there. When you when you control the House of Representatives, but you don't control the Senate or the White House, you think you've got more power than you do. And so there's a tendency to overplay your hand. I don't think that's really where Kevin McCarthy is. I think his majority is so thin and his party is so divided that he knows he doesn't have a very strong hand. He's just trying to get through the day. But this is not going to, bar, you know, barring just bizarre circumstances, in six months, people will not be thinking about this very much, much less six years or 60 years. This is not really history being made before your eyes. This is politicians squabbling. All right. Final story of the week. The U.S. ambassador to Canada claims that intelligence provided by Five Eyes, the intelligence sharing pact between the U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, led to Canada's public accusation that the Indian government may have played a role in the assassination of a Sikh separatist on Canadian soil. Relations between India and Canada reportedly plummeted last week after Canada announced its investigation into, quote, credible allegations that New Delhi was potentially responsible for the June killing of Hardeep Singh Nijar, who was killed by masked gunmen in Surrey, British Columbia. India vehemently denies the claims and suspended visa services for Canadian citizens in retaliation, while both countries have expelled diplomats in reciprocal moves, raising the stakes in a rift between two key partners of the United States. News or phone news? 
That's just the first time in a long time I've heard someone call Canada a key partner of the United States. It's a neighbor, but I don't notice immense amounts of Canadian. I think their their military spending as a percentage of GDP is close to Germany's. So I, I key partners may be a little strong here. <laughs> It's news. It's mostly news about Canada. The Prime Minister of Canada is not, even though he's been in office for some time, he's not one of the world's most level-headed politicians. He's also facing a a tough... uh, His his poll numbers are, are not good. I think he unnecessarily dramatized this by sort of making a big speech, you know, big announcement about it in public. Uh, normally in these kinds of things, there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes um, and people are a little bit more careful in how they handle it. So I I don't think it's been well handled. Obviously, uh, I don't actually approve of countries, intelligence agencies running around killing people in other countries, unless, of course, it's the good guys doing it, in which case it's uh, necessary and so on. We'll see where it goes. What I'm hoping is that all concerned will understand the importance of managing it, particularly, I think, the Canadians. Well, my increasingly desperate attempts to find a story about Canada that qualifies as news is uh, only partially fulfilled. So we'll, we'll get there eventually. Well, you know, they used to say the most boring headline in journalism was worthwhile Canadian initiative. Okay. Sometimes I think under the current uh, government in, in Canada, that actually would be news, <laughs> worthwhile Canadian initiative. It really becomes a man bites dog kind of story. Right. Anyway, that does it for this week's news. Let's have the big conversation. So, Walter, there's a debate raging out there in Twitter and Substack land, and I think it connects to the blue model in a way we haven't spoken about before. And for anyone unfamiliar with Walter's theory of the blue model, the political and social and economic system in America from about the end of World War II to 2000 or so, you should check out our previous episode called The Blue Model, which goes into it in detail. But this debate I want to talk about today concerns a series of different charts and graphs and studies that have been going around for a little while in a kind of grouping. And they all seem to tell the same story, which basically amounts to the idea or the fact maybe that almost every institution in America is blue. So there's one from Bloomberg showing that of the 100 employers in America, public and private, who have the most employees, only two out of 100, the Marine Corps and the NYPD, had more employees who gave money to Trump than to Biden in 2020. There's one from Brookings showing that the counties that voted for Biden in 2020 generate 71% of U.S. GDP compared with 29% for Trump. There's one showing that Democrats outnumber Republicans in academia by obviously comically lopsided ratios, not even just among students, but among faculty and administrators in particular. And then my favorite, a pie chart based on FEC data showing that out of all employed journalists in America, 95% are Democrats, 5% are Republicans. Now, the exceptions to this idea that, you know, the American state and American institutions are almost completely blue seem to be state governments where Republicans currently control a majority of state capitals and the U.S. Supreme Court, although the legal profession as a whole, I think, also skews very blue. And then there's also the Republican advantage in the Electoral College and rural areas with greater Senate representation, which keeps the GOP electorally competitive. But other than that, red America, according to all this information, seems pretty limited to 
to people who work in things like trucking, construction, some other trades like plumbers, welders, mechanics, farming, police and firefighters, the military, business owners. And other than that, from tech to education, media, Wall Street, healthcare, entertainment, most services, and importantly, virtually all non-military public employees, it's all blue. How or why do you think this happened and what are its implications? I guess, first of all, I'm, my big question about this, was anybody surprised by any of this? Um, has somebody been living under a rock and they and they just didn't notice? My gosh, professors are mostly liberal. Uh, <laughs> you know, certainly, you know, at Bard College, you could never tell that was the case. I mean, I, I just... You know, these, well, these... I guess a, a good additional question was would be, has it always been like this? Because it seems like there are at least some people with some kind of institutional memory that at least feel like this has uh, only been in the last 20 to 30 years or so, whether that's empirically correct or not. Well, I do think we're in a very interesting situation. The modern American political party system really is was the creation of the, of the Civil War. And sort of at that time, the, the Republican Party became the party of the North. And the Democrats were kind of the party of sore losers, which include a number of my relatives, I must say. And over time, it included people who were unhappy about the kind of financial, manufacturing, New England-centered kind of political economy that developed in the United States. Farmers were rock-ribbed Republicans kind of at the start of the era uh, as the uh, agricultural depression of the late 19th century wore on, farmers often were Democrats, voted for people like William Jennings Bryan. This, um, this party system lasted really up until the 1960s, and a number of things kind of began to stir the pot back then. And one of the interesting things about it was in those old days, because you actually had liberal Republicans and you had both liberal and conservative Democrats. So bipartisanship was more common on some issues, and the party system was less polarized. But gradually, and, and Nixon had a lot to do with it, Reagan had a lot to do with it, the white South, by and large, not unanimously, but a lot of the white South moved into the Republican Party, and the Republican Party began to be more of a, quote, conservative party, and also more of a blue-collar party. Uh, the Reagan Democrats were often, they were descendants of ethnic immigrants from the 1880s to the 1920s living in the Midwest and so on. They, they and their parents had been Democrats for generations, but they didn't really like Jimmy Carter. What was it they used to say in the 70s? The Democrats were the AAA party, the party of acid, amnesty, and abortion. <laughs> and so the cultural issues uh, began to separate the parties. And that's been going. And, and amazingly, as that's happened, as more blue-collar types have gone into the Republican Party, the sort of white-collar world has united in the Democrats. Today, the Democrats are actually quite a bit like the Republican Party was after the Civil War, the Natural Party, the American establishment. You know, so major newspapers, foundations, universities. The old American establishment was Republican. In the 50s, kind of Eisenhower Republican, uh, the AMA, American Medical Association, and so on. So what, what I think we've seen is that the parties have been slowly changing places. 
And so the Republicans, who used to be the party of the ins, are now becoming the party of the outs. And the Democrats, who once were the party of the outs, are now more and more the party of the ins. And there it goes. There's a kind of cliche that, you know, I I think it predates the whole MAGA movement. And I I don't know what, what the years since then have done to the theory. But the theory being kind of that... The Republican Party is mostly made up of people who, you know, are they're they're willing to show up to vote, but other than that, they don't care that much about politics or political activism. We're talking about, you know, most ordinary voters, not like, you know, concentrated interests or anything. And that the Democrats have attracted most of the people who are actually willing to devote themselves to politics and to political activism. And that kind of trait is correlated with a lot of other things like higher political intolerance, you know, like liberals being less tolerant than conservatives of having neighbors or relatives or romantic partners from the opposite ideology, also being, you know, kind of more neurotic and less happy. And that that maybe is what explains the, you know, the the ability to dominate certain cultural trends or institutions at the expense of all the others. Do you see anything to that? Uh, I think, um, you know, Democrats produce poll after poll or study by experts that show Republicans are authoritarians and just generally bad people. And Republicans will, will find those too. And so, you know, yawn is basically what I say. You know, um, if you were to give me a choice of who do I want to back me, people who want to spend their whole lives in politics or people who think about politics as little as possible, since that second group is 95% of the population, I would much (laughs) rather, you know, be in cahoots with them. But I think in some ways, there is a class issue in American politics. And while you've got to, and this again goes back to the late 19th, early 20th century, and this, this is a group that was originally Republican, but has been trending Democratic, that you had people, the kind of progressive reformers, the good government types. They looked at things like Tammany Hall. They looked at socialists and all of these dreadful radicals. They looked at rednecks and lynch mobs in the South and all of this. And they said, you know what? Poor people really cannot be trusted. Poor people need control. But then they looked at the, like, you know, Gilded Age plutocrats that could only think of more, 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 and they're they're indolent, greedy, nepotistic kids. And they thought, you know what? If you give the rich their head, they'll wreck the country by trying to gather up everything and crush everyone else. But if you turn it over to the poor, you'll get a bunch of populist know-nothings, and you'll have an equally bad disaster. So what's needed is those of us in the middle— upper-middle-class, well-educated reformers who will govern basically on the national interest because we're smarter than other people and nicer than other people, and we understand the way things ought to work. That kind of person is—they did a lot of good turning Tammany Hall into a city government where there was at least some competence— taming, if not eliminating corruption, having a professional civil service rather than people might remember Abraham Lincoln was pursued his entire presidency by people, you know, trying to get this job or that job. So reducing the that kind of thing, you know, it, it was in many ways a very positive thing that some of the things they did were much more negative, like 
let's stop poor, stupid people from breeding, so compulsory sterilization. <laughs> Many of them, it's not surprising, shared the racial attitudes that everyone else had in their day, only they were often, they'd sort of ideologized racism. So they didn't just dislike people who didn't look like them. They developed very elaborate quasi-scientific theories about why all the people who looked differently from them uh, were inferior people to, to their own wonderful selves. And, you know, they did some good, they did some harm, but they ran things. They, more and more, they ran things. And they've really gained a lot of power. They've taken over professions. Journalism used to be a really blue-collar job. It was not a job that an eager beaver graduate of Harvard or Yale would like come down and work for the New York Times and feel that they were doing some you know high noble thing. Um, it was much more the grizzled, cynical, old, hard bitten guy who worked. Uh, you know, parents were working class and had a very different perspective on politics than, than the college kids that succeeded them. And what we're seeing right now in American politics is a huge battle royal where the non-professionals and non-upper-middle-class people are just sick of having their lives run by these self-appointed busybodies, or to put it another way, these disinterested custodians of the public interest. And, uh, you know, people see it differently. Donald Trump has, in an extraordinary way, managed to kind of wrap all this up into a grand narrative about himself, where he basically is saying, you know what? This whole professional upper middle class, all of the experts, all of the professors, all of these self-important people, they actually know nothing. The emperor has no clothes. I alone have the guts to tell you this. That's that's almost the essence that's almost everything he says right there. And it's why some people love him passionately no matter what else he might do say or think and why other people think he is the devil incarnate and that he represents everything that is absolutely terrible and destructive in American politics. So uh, it's not a surprise that all of the good people, all of the intelligent and credential people, all of the institutionalized people are by and large very solidly anti-Trump, anti-populist, anti-Republican. And why on the other side, people that the rebels are absolutely determined to try to get Trump back in the White House and this time make real changes. All right, that does it for the big conversation. And we've run out of time for this week, so we'll skip the tip of the week for this episode, but we'll be back with it next time. Many thanks to our producer, Noam Bloom. Thanks to my co-host, Walter Russell Mead. I'm Jeremy Stern. We'll see you next time. Bye.